lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. Journeys with Joanne Joseph. Explore stories. Stories from the past and present. Journeys with Joanne Joseph. So, Nikki, I'm going to start with you. Uh, this program, uh, as I understand it, is integral to uh, your experience as a child. And, uh, you know, for, for those of, of us unfamiliar with the Sydney Frankel case, can you please tell us what you remember? You know, my, my recall, just having decided to come forward and ultimately reveal the secret that I carried for decades, forced me into going back to a very uncomfortable place and remembering the times over the years in terms of what happened and we were taken off it was the 70s it was a time where as white children we were being raised mainly by domestic workers Uh, it was a it was a done thing for our parents to you know let you go away for the weekend with somebody today you would never think of sending your child away for a weekend with somebody the thing is that Sidney Frankel was known to our families he was a trusted person he was a person who had a very high standing in the community and he managed to gain the trust of our parents to allow us to go and he won us over by taking us in fancy cars out of the suburbs onto a farm all of us were off with our friends um, and it was just these weekends of absolute carefree abandon where you would ride horses he would position me in front of him on a horse and rub himself against me until he had an erection and then insert his fingers into my private parts Uh, the same sort of thing played out in the swimming pool where he'd take you out of the pool afterwards and dry you and then there were games that went on collectively where all the girls were told to sit around in a circle only with their dresses on and their panties not on and he went around the circle instructing us how we could develop strong legs for horse riding and that's where the sexual abuse took place as well and uh you know, you were just kind of swept up in it and it was happening to everybody with you. And as a seven-year-old child, you didn't have the language skills to come home and articulate what had happened. And what happened too is that I think as a child, when there is non-violent sexual touch, your body betrays you. Yes. So you are stuck between this place of in your heart and soul knowing that something's happening that shouldn't be happening. And yet it's non-violent you are betrayed by your body and you come back to your parents who have never educated you in terms of naming the private parts. We weren't raised in the 70s with knowing that we could say no to people. It was very much a time where you were polite and you were told get up and say hello to Uncle Solly and go and kiss yes. Auntie Hilda hello. Yes. And, and go and sit on that person's and lap. And go and sit on that person's lap. Yes, you yes. didn't dare say no. So, you know, that was the era that we were raised in and... It continued for all those years and it became almost like this is this is what we did. This was part of our outings to to the game farm with him and to the to the horse farm. And it, it, was there a stage when you suddenly realized, you know, that actually there was something very wrong happening here and, and that you had to go and tell someone or, or no. has it simply no. become second nature to you? You know, the the fact that it was sustained and it was ongoing for many years, the abuse stopped at the age of 12 where, you know, speaking to a lot of the other people who were victims of Frankel's abuse, he lost interest in you when you became a 12-year-old. So he he was very classic in terms of his selection of the 
the victims that he chose. Um, and then I think you kind of go into this haze of denial. You carry the responsibility that you caused this. You feel the shame that you brought it on yourself. Uh, you carry the guilt that there's nobody that you can trust who you can talk to. And then, you know, the research shows, and again, looking at the people who were involved in the case, many of us have a history of substance abuse. Yes. That became the way that you kind of quelled any feelings that were negative. Mm. And then you really have the realization well into the third or fourth decade of your life where perhaps you have the courage to talk up or there's a triggering event that makes you realize why you've behaved the way you have and why you start to join the dots in your life and understand why you've done what you've done. Your brother, Paul Diamond, was also caught up in this. Right. Did, did the two of you or any of the other children involved ever talk amongst yourselves never. about what was happening? We never, ever discussed it. And yet there was this unspoken understanding. We knew that it was happening. Uh, you know, I left primary school, and that's when I parted ways with my friend, who was a relative of Frankel's. Uh, so she was a relative of Frankel's, and Paul's friend was his relative. They were brothers and sisters. So when I changed schools and went on to high school, her and I severed all contact. We only made contact again when I came out with the decision to try and seek justice in terms of Frankel. So it was an absolutely unspoken thing. You know, Nikki, all these years later, I mean, in, in so many other cases, there's been some kind of resolution, if only a legal one. Uh, you and the other Sidney Frankel uh, group, I, I should not even label you that, I should say those of you who who, uh, who have came, have come out and spoken about uh, your Sidney Frankel experiences, ha have never really had that kind of resolution, have you? We didn't. It was a, you know, it was a big shock when we heard that he had passed away. Uh, we all really wanted our opportunity to look him in the eye and say, you know, what have you got to say for yourself? So I think we felt kind of robbed of that opportunity to do that. But, the, you know, we, we have the outcome that probably a better outcome that we ever anticipated in terms of the constitutional court change and the end of prescription. So that's the greatest victory, not just for us as individuals, but for the whole for the whole country. Let's just speak about that briefly, because of course, uh, there, there used to be constraints previously uh, on uh, the number of years later, the period in, in which you could report abuse. And, and now that you and the others have taken this to court, and it was quite a groundbreaking judgment and has opened the way for many people who abused decades ago to finally come forward. Yes, and that's exactly what has happened. You know, we, we've been in touch with people who were abused 30, 40, 50 years ago, and it's given them that empowerment that they now have the choice to, to press charges all these decades later. So it is a, it's a huge victory for us. You know, the, the, the idea that many people come forward just with the hope of being believed many years on, even if there isn't the, the evidence anymore uh, to prove what happened to them. I mean, do, do people ever say to you that they don't believe you because there hasn't been a legal outcome? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that that speaks to the lack of education in the community. If people would take the time to research this topic, they would understand that people don't come out with it for I think it's about 34 years on average that it takes a person to talk up. And, you know, if, you've, if you have those reservations as an adult, can you imagine how much more reserved you are in terms of talking out when you're a child of six and seven and eight years old? And uh, there is. I mean, there's still people who would say, you know, this was done because of money. This was done because of this and that. Uh, 
there is still an incredibly big myth that exists within the communities today that people aren't believed. And I think that by spreading the word about it and by, get, by educating people, we teach people to understand why we remain silent for so long. And you, you live or were raised, I should say, in a very close, close-knit community. Exactly. And Sydney Frankel was very respected in that community. Sure. I mean, so, so sticking your neck out and making these allegations must have been a very brave choice, but there must have been consequences for you. Well, I had, you know, for myself, my moment of realisation came and it, it became more difficult for me to remain silent than to talk out. And I knew that we would we would have a long, long battle ahead of us. By the time I decided to talk out, Sidney Frankel had become a far more influential businessman, philanthropist. He was known politically, he was known internationally. So it was a huge challenge. And I think it was always felt, you know, from their side that we would get legal fatigue and that we would ultimately back down. Yes. We were just very fortunate to have a strong, my brother and I, were strong in terms of seeing the re, you know resolution with this, and we had Ian Levitt and his incredible staff who never backed down, and he was the person that I sought out who believed me, trusted trusted me with what I had told him, and gave me the guarantee that he would pursue it till the bitter end. And I think ultimately that is what all victims of sexual abuse are looking for: is that person who they can talk, turn to, who they can trust, and where they'll be believed. Otherwise, you stay silent. You know, it's such a pity that uh, Nikki and so many other people have had to wait for decades to come out and actually speak out about this abuse. Uh, one would love to be able to bestow this gift on our children where they're able to actually come forth at the time at which this is happening to them and reveal the circumstances of it and those who might be involved. So I'm going to bring Roseanne Sack into the conversation. She is one of the co-founders of uh, Kalenu South Africa, Kalenu meaning our voices. And Roseanne, you, you're very involved in a schools program that deals with speaking out about sexual abuse. Correct. Um, Kolenu has developed over the last two years a prevention of sexual abuse program um, to be run with children from grade R to grade 6. And it's basically a life skills program. You know, it's not a program where we actually go in and scare the children or specifically talk about abuse, but rather it's a program that gives them skills to know when they're in an unsafe situation and how to deal with it. And the program also speaks to parents and teachers and staff at the schools. So everybody's involved in, in the education and um, it's vital. We've, we've drawn on resources from Australia, from America, um, from Israel, from all over to put together a program that really is psychologically sound and you know caters to the South African context. Um, and the various elements that we deal with here in society. So, so, so a couple of uh, questions about that. And, and, and the first one I'm going to ask you is about cognitive ability, because we know that this changes and develops in children over the years. So obviously, you're educating children who might be five or six years old, you might be educating children who are 15 or 16 mm -hmm. years old. How exactly do you develop that program that is age appropriate to deal with, uh, with sexual abuse uh, without, as you say, frightening the children? Uh, or making them paranoid right so the program starts with grade r's and then runs to grade six so the initial year the first year of the rollout we do four sessions with the children um, that are done at a very sort of simplistic level so we'll deal with feelings and we'll develop their vocabulary around their feelings and get them to start to understand the words that describe how they're feeling 
and then we teach them to relate it to their inside their body so we explain that your bodies will tell you when you're feeling something and we call that their early warning signals and essentially what you're teaching them there is to trust their gut instinct which we don't even do as adults we we don't do it so we it becomes sort of internalized from a very young age that if my if my body is telling me that i'm feeling a certain way i'm in an unsafe or uncomfortable situation we give them the tools to deal with it so we teach them about their early warning signals. We teach them about the difference between good and bad secrets and privacy, what it means to be private, what it means to be public. Certain parts of your body are private. And then we teach them rules around their private parts. Nobody is allowed to touch your private parts, even through your clothes, through your clothing, um, ask to see your private parts. You are not al- allowed to ask to see anybody else's private parts or touch anybody else's private parts. And the program is very um, customized to the community that we we in. So if a particular school doesn't want us to mention the actual private parts, we'll say it's pri- your private parts are the parts covered by your swimming costume, for example. Um, our philosophy actually is to mention the private parts. Children need to know the names of their private parts, like they know their eyes and their nose and their, their yes, mouth. They yes. need to know what those parts are called right. because there are there's historically so many cases that have been thrown out of court because children weren't able to verbalize what it was that actually happened to them because of using weird names for various body parts. You know, Rosanna, my attention was caught by something you said there about, you know, we move into certain schools and if they don't like us to mention a a certain framing of it, we don't. It suggests to me that, uh, I mean, although we all broadly accept that uh, sexual education and the protection of children has moved on, Mm -hmm. uh, that that some of us, some of our communities are still holding back, are still quite conservative Mm -hmm. in our approach to what is a, a, a big problem we need to tackle. Absolutely. And I mean, we see it a lot. And, you know, there's certain closed communities um, across the board in this country where parents don't want this type of thing discussed. Um, It's taboo. Um, It's a subject that just doesn't get brought up. Children are not really taught healthy, what is a healthy relationship. They're not able to express anything. So when the abuse does take place, and it does take place in these communities, they're unable to verbalize. Um, they're they're naive in in what is actually happening to them, and um, I think we've got a long way to go in terms of educating communities that this is life saving education. You know, you're not bringing up a subject that's going to you know put your child over the edge or cause them to go off the right path. You're actually giving them skills that are potentially going to save their life one day you know Roseanne what do you say to a parent and a parent who is unmoving in this and says look my child is only six years old Uh, there's no way that he or she uh, is going to be affected by this at this age because the child is with me all the time or with a very close caregiver I trust I'm not ready for my child to do this what do you say to a parent to convince them otherwise so it's it's very hard to force this type of education on anybody um But I think, you know, it's baby steps. And our belief is that even if we start really slowly and we just start with the basic, basic skills, which would be, you know, when your body tells you you're in an unsafe situation, you need to tell somebody, you know, even if it's the basic, basic skill um, that can make a difference, then that's what we'll put across. So, 
you know, our program is age appropriate. So we'd start off with grade R and then go to grade one where we do very similar concepts, but we start to build on a little bit. And and each year we build on a little bit more age appropriately, giving them scenarios and making it much more practical. So um, we would never push a parent, but I think if, you know, statistics can be scary and we do speak about statistics, um, but at the end of the day, we don't want to be the scaremongers and we don't want to be seen as those crazy women who are going around scaring everybody, you know? So we'd rather step back a little bit, just do a little bit and, and baby steps forward. Because as I said, we have got a long way to go in terms of this, this type of thing. We're way behind other countries in the world in terms of educating on this. Right. I, I want to ask you about something that I feel uh, is very much a part of the person, personality or the upbringing of South African children. I think we, we, pray, we place a great deal of emphasis as parents on politeness, on good manners. Um, how exactly, I mean, if, if a child is never, ever encouraged to dig into that, that, that sort of base uh, response that is required when they are being attacked in one way or another, how do we teach them to access that if, if they simply never have any practice doing it? Right. So South African children are very polite. South Africans are very polite. So um, really, we need to change the narrative around this. And what we teach the children is that if you're in a situation where you feel unsafe or uncomfortable, um, most of the types of programs we are doing around the world will teach say no, go away, tell an adult. That's your toolkit. So what we are saying is say no, go away, tell an adult if you can. But the last thing we want to do is put shame on the child that they didn't say no or they weren't able to get away. Because then what you're doing is actually putting responsibility on that child. And that's why they won't ever tell because they'll the incident will, God forbid, happen. And they'll say, but I was supposed to say no and I was supposed to go away and I didn't. So we teach them rather, even if you couldn't say no, even if you thought no in your head, even if you couldn't get away, but you knew that you were in an unsafe situation, please tell one of your safe adults. And we help them build a, a network of safe adults to tell trusted adults in their lives who they can go to. And the research is actually showing that children that have this education are telling much sooner than children that haven't had it. So, for example, Nikki's story where she often says to us if she had had that, those skills, yes. the abuse would not have gone on for all those years because mm. she would have known to come and tell. Yes. And you basically, you know, secrecy is the weapon of the abuser. Right. And if they don't, if you stop that secret in its tracks and the child knows that they have to tell, you, it's a huge thing. In, in stopping child sexual abuse. Nikki, let me bring you back into the conversation here. I mean, you spoke so well about the nature of grooming, and I think it is such a subtle thing that sometimes even when you're abused as an adult, you're not quite able to categorize that experience or put it into the required vocabulary in, in order for you to help yourself understand what has happened to you. I, I just, I, this is what worries me, is with, with the, the cognitive ability of children when they're very young, I, I'm not sure how many of them, even with training, would be able to to understand something as abuse. Well, that's incredibly relevant what you're saying because, you know, in our instance, Frankel was able to groom family members, adults. And, you know, that's why you need to know that these predators are incredibly calculating, charismatic people. Yes. And 
of course, a child is totally unaware of the fact that they're being groomed. And the red flag is that no adult should ever take more interest in your child than you do. So when your child is being offered judo lessons or tickets to the ballet or time spent alone with somebody, that's when you really need to start understanding this dynamic that's being you know, that's being set into motion. Yes. And it starts in such a subtle way. And the predator and the pedophile knows exactly how to work this process. So it begins in a way where maybe there's a little bit of discomfort, but then it's glossed over and you become dependent on that person. You begin to like that person. You feel special to that person. And they are able to smell and sniff out a vulnerability in a child. And before you know it, an entire system's been swallowed up in this grooming process. Yes. Uh, you know, that's a, it's a very tough thing. I mean, uh, we recently interviewed Jennifer Fox about her, her film, The Tale. And it is a realization she has several years afterwards, which she misperceived as a love relationship with an adult before. Uh, but it is essentially statutory rape which occurred I mean, do children are children given the fact that they are so taken by the predator and the predator's approach is one of calmness is one of affection is one of love particularly for children who may not receive that in their home environments I mean, how, how do we prevent children from, from even from even moving towards those being attracted to those types of individuals in their environment So it's all, again, it's about education. I think as parents, we've done a great job of educating about stranger danger. You know, don't take sweets from strangers, don't take lifts, don't talk to strangers. But in this case, it's not the stranger. And it's not the guy in the trench coat lurking in the dark alley. It's 95% of the time, somebody close to the family and close to the child. And as you correctly said, they hone in on a child who is vulnerable. They'll pick out the kid who's being bullied the kid who comes from a dysfunctional home, um, the child who has low self-esteem. And then they will groom that child and they will make that child feel special before they've even sexualized the relationship at all. They will form a very special bond with that child. They'll lavish gifts on the child, treat special things that that child has never had before. And so it does form a bond and it becomes very hard for the child because they, when they do sexualize the relationship and it becomes more uncomfortable, they threaten. So they will say to the child, if you tell, I'm going to go to jail, you'll never see me again. So for a child who's very attached to this person, that is unthinkable for them and it will yes. be their fault. Um, you know, I'll hurt your family, I'll hurt your baby sister, whatever it is. It comes with a lot of threats. And forensic research is actually showing that children felt uncomfortable long before the relationship was sexualized. So the grooming process takes place over a very long time and it was already right in the beginning that the child had that feeling, the yes. gut feel it was telling them something's not right, but they didn't actually know what was going on until the relationship was already sexualized and they were already bonded with the abuser. So it is a very, it's very, very difficult for children. Um, and that's where the education has to come in, that the minute you feel that uncomfortable feeling, the minute there's touch that doesn't feel right you have to tell one of your safe adults you know the minute somebody tells you to keep a secret from your parents from you know other people in your life that is not okay you need to tell a safe adult 
the minute somebody you know touches you in your private parts or makes you feel uncomfortable you need to tell so it's tell 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 really and it's about education Roseanne just a question about the adult who has to who happens to be the recipient of this information so a child comes to you as an adult and and tells you about something like this this that has happened um, you know that the, that the adult who is being accused uh, your suspicions have never been raised in in regard to this person this may be a close relative this may be the child's father mother someone very close to them uh, and and it may be uh, that that the reporting of this event or putting it out into the public domain is going to cause a massive rupture for the family right. w- what should your next step be okay so when we educate parents we educate them on dealing with the disclosure so and you know anyone dealing with children needs to know teachers admin staff whoever need to know how to deal with a disclosure. So when a child does disclose, um, normally the child will test you a little bit, see how you react. And if you react badly or in a way that makes them feel that they're not going to be believed, they'll shut down. So we teach parents the words to use. I believe you. It's good that you told me. This is not your fault. Nobody has the right to hurt you. And then that will open up a discussion about what has actually happened. And we tell parents that even if you know the perpetrator, don't overreact, don't start making derogatory comments, don't scream and shout about this perpetrator because the child will shut down. Again, going back to that very weird relationship that the child has with the abuser, you know. So um, again, I keep saying it's all about the education. So if parents know how to respond, Um, to open the child up to give a full disclosure and then they know that legally um, you know they shouldn't ask certain types of questions that they should allow the child to talk and then write down afterwards and to never promise confidentiality so the child will more than likely say please I I need to tell you something but promise me you you won't tell anybody you can't because we're mandatory reporters and we have to report child abuse you know it's our it's a legal responsibility so um, they're taught to explain to the child that, you know, I cannot keep the secret. I cannot keep confidentiality. There are people that we need to talk to who need to help us. But we will discuss together who we talk to and you will, you know, help us make every decision along the way. So you don't take away their power. You keep them involved. And, um, and then it sort of, you know, goes forward and opens the way. In terms of abusers who are prominent in communities, people that you know, the parents know, etc. It's a huge obstacle because it does prevent reporting. Um, we see it with cases we deal with, you know, people phone us with a story, with a case, but they're scared to report. They're scared they'll be implicated. They're scared that the child will be put on the standing yes. court, that they won't be dealt with properly, you yeah. know. And all we can say is that, you know, these people need to be stopped and the process actually isn't as bad as it's made out to be you know there's specialized units dealing with these types of things and what we've seen so far being involved in certain court cases etc is that it's all very well handled you know but this fear and the fear of exposure and of causing a whole community scandal they're huge huge um, obstacles in in the way of reporting yes uh, Nikki I, I do want to wrap up with you and and it's a question that I think uh, is is probably particularly close to your heart because I, I you get the sense in many of these cases particularly the the big cases like yours that there were actually adults who knew that at some point if not at that time 
They were told, but they chose to turn a blind eye. What should happen to them? <clears throat> that's, uh, I mean, that's an incredibly pertinent point that you're making because certainly there were people very, very close to Frankel who knew for decades that this is what that man was about. And I think it's very much a question of, in a lot of instances, as long as my kids are okay, then let's not worry about what's happening out there. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we knew that there was there was a ruling in certain homes that if Uncle Sidney came, he wasn't left alone with the children. So it went on and there were, you know, there were rumblings in the Jewish community for, for decades that this is what he was about. And yet he was still able to sweep people up because of his charisma, because of his standing. And uh, it continued, you know, the people who shared his home with him knew what he was about and chose to remain silent. What should happen to them? I've got my own opinions about that. And, uh, you know, we can we can only just hope that we create a world where even the people close to these monsters and perpetrators are able to come forward one day and speak the truth because that's the right thing to do. Thank you both so much for coming in to speak to us. Uh, Nikki Diamond-Levenstein is initiator of the Sydney Frankel uh, investigation. And uh, the other voice you heard, Roseanne Sack, is founder of Kalenu South Africa, one of the co-founders of that organization. Wonderful speaking to the both of you. Thank you both Thank so much for so coming much in for to speak us. to Thank us. You for Thank you. Us. Thank you. For more journeys with Joe and Joseph, subscribe to this podcast at livepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.